It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder, specifically the murder of a child. Here at The Murder Sheet, we are huge fans of the author, Scott Turow. His first novel, Presumed Innocent, came out back in 1987 and introduced readers to the lawyers of Kendall County. In the years since, Turow has published many more novels, rich and gripping legal thrillers, each one well worth reading. But his literary work is only a portion of Turow's professional life. He's also worked pro bono in several death penalty cases, was a lead counsel in a federal probe of judicial corruption in Illinois, and also worked cases involving police misconduct. Just last month, he published his newest novel, Suspect. It is a terrific book. Narrated by a reckless and relentless young investigator named Pinky, 
It tells the story of a female police chief who is accused of requiring her subordinates to give her sex in exchange for promotions. And that is just the beginning. We both really enjoyed all the twists and turns in the novel and strongly recommend it. Recently, we got the chance to talk with Scott Turow about Suspect and his own fascinating legal career. He will even tell us about an occasion when the tables were turned and he found himself in the role of the accused man. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're The Murder Sheet, and this is A Conversation with Scott Turow. We're really excited that that you're speaking with us. Uh, we both read the book uh, yeah. Suspect, and loved we really it. loved it. It was amazing how well you captured uh, the voice of someone so different from yourself. And one thing we were wondering about: not only is she different in terms of gener- generationally, but she's also different because she's a private eye instead of an attorney. So we were right. curious. How did you capture that aspect of her character? Well, uh, candidly, that seemed a lot easier than, um, you know, the 40-year age gap. But, um, you know, I, I, I practiced criminal law for a long time and necessarily met a lot of investigators, Um many of whom would not say out loud some of the things that that Pinky uh, admits to. You know, and it's a very it's a very funny life because you've got um, you've got these very big companies like Kroll, for example. Kroll is a large firm that has conducted investigations in many prominent cases. For instance, back during the Larry Nasser case, Kroll was retained by Michigan State University to investigate sexual assault cases. And they're pretty much by the book. And then uh, the other folks sort of live by doing uh, what Kroll won't. 
uh, and uh, you know, basically, you know, trying to know where the lines are, but creeping right up to them and raising a little chalk dust. So you know, it wasn't hard to figure out what somebody like Pinky would be doing and thinking. And besides, she's Pinky, so um, you know, whatever the norms are, uh, they're not going to restrict her. Uh, so I, you know, and I, I again. I always bear in mind I was on a panel once with the late Robert Parker, of the you know of Spencer fame, and uh, somebody asked uh, Bob about his research, and uh, he answered, "Oh, I'm just a good typist." So, and I and I always took from that that at the end of the day, whether there's not a private investigator in the country who would say. Oh, you know, I'm not like Pinky at all. That's beside the point. The question is, you know, will the reader believe it? And uh, you know, is it accurate in that way? Um, I myself am a, uh, a millennial woman, and I thought you did a fantastic job capturing Pinky, and I loved her earnestness. That's sort of like the core of the character, um, mm -hmm. and how dogged she is. And I'm yeah. just curious, you know. Um, I'm sure you've been asked about that a lot, but like, how did that, what was the process of sort of like, okay, I'm going to go for this writing about someone, you know, in a totally yeah. different generation and capturing that authentic voice? That was hard, obviously, and mostly because of my anxiety about it. It's not like I haven't had my ears open. And uh, I have a daughter and a stepdaughter who are closer to Pinky's age. Uh, one of them is a little closer to Pinky's social experience um and you know one of them identifies as queer you know it, 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 she was very helpful obviously and uh, you know there were a number of readers who said no 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 this is just wrong um but you know the, i was pretty proud of myself because there of how relatively little of that there was and you know mostly i listened you know, and I, I think I, that that process of listening began um, a long time before because I think every generation tries to size up the generations either ahead or behind them and figure out, you know, what's, um, you know, what's cooking for those people. Um, so it was definitely, I never thought as I approached this book, that I would have the temerity to try to write in the first person. And when I began writing, um, you know, there was this voice. Uh, and and I was like, no, 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 no. You, you be quiet. Let me find the third person voice. And, uh, you know, but she kept talking to me. So uh, I finally wrote my editor, Ben Severe, and, uh, you know, Ben knew what I was up to, but certainly not that I was going to write in the first person. And I sent him drafts, two drafts of the first chapter, one in the first person, one in the third. And, uh, you know, and I was ready for him to say, no, no, you can't do this first person thing. Uh, he wrote back and said, you're right. It's much more lively. It's much more interesting than the third person. Uh, and, you know, he was impressed by how much of my own voice I had sacrificed to get to Pinky's. Uh, you know, because Pinky is not a lettered person. She, 
doesn't like to read. She's smart, obviously. Um, but, uh, you know, she's, you know, she is herself and never could submit to the discipline of school very well. So, uh, and Ben just said, you know, go for it. If, if it doesn't work, you know, we'll, it won't take that long to rewrite it in the third person. So that's what we agreed to. But it did, it seems to have worked out. Uh, you know, I think there are, you know, there have been a couple of snotty reviews which basically stop at saying, you know, how dare he, but not with any specific complaints, just it's the chutzpah that bothers, that seem to bother the reviewers. But, but generally speaking, you know, there's been shockingly well accepted. Yeah, it's a great book. We both uh, really enjoyed it a great deal. And, you know, I've, I've read all of your novels and uh, I've, I've enjoyed them all. Uh, you talk about, you know, Bob Parker saying he's more of a typist than an, uh, a researcher. But I guess in a way, your your day job, for lack of a better word, is your research for your novels. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to give I mean, away too much about the plot, but it involves some like uh, police misconduct, and that's yeah. certainly an area you've worked in. That I knew really, really well, uh, beginning with my days as an assistant U.S. attorney when I did a couple of police department investigations related to civil rights investigations. That is, in, in that in that term, that does not have to do with race. It had to do with police beating cases where cops, uh, rather than arresting or in addition to arresting, decided to impose pretty severe corporal punishment of their own. And uh, and that was the first time I was exposed to police departments and, um, you know, figuring out how hard it was to crack the blue code. And, and, um, you know, and then I tried one of those cases watch one of the one of my police witnesses flip me on the stand and you know you have to eat his grand jury testimony word by word uh but because i had that experience uh, when i left for private practice i was hired as a special prosecutor slash investigator for a police department in oak park illinois and uh, oak park you know, has just a higher turmoil turmoil threshold than most towns could stand. Uh, at that point, had a lot of um, conflict on its police department because one of the African American officers uh, had done a brave thing and said, "You know, some of my colleagues are uh, keeping what's alleged to be stolen property," and so that turned into a wide ranging investigation including conduct that was very much like uh, the ritzes uh, you know going into making a dope bust and uh, you know keeping most of the money that was found in the apartment because what is the defendant going to say you know uh, you know i had more money or i had more drugs neither one of which is going to do anything but you know, get him or her into deeper trouble. So, and then because I'd had those experiences, I was ultimately appointed to the state police merit board and was involved in the hiring and firing and disciplining of police officers. And uh, 
everything before that led to certain officers coming to me and saying, uh, I'd like you to represent me because that is one thing about cops. They, when, when they're in trouble, you know, they don't care if you're white, blue or purple. Uh, they want, you know, they want a good lawyer they, they, because they, they figure it's a game and they want the best player on their side. And, uh, you know, I represented police officers in all kinds of contexts, ultimately ended up representing the Labor Council of the state FOP. Um, in other words, you know, the, each of the Fraternal Order of Police lodges is separate bargaining unit, but the, the, the Labor Council obviously creates policy for them at a state council. So, you know, and I still have good friends who are police officers and, you know, and I, I, I think I understand a lot about their world. That was not a lot of research for me. Um, understanding how a police disciplinary proceeding works. You know, I've done that. I've been on both sides of that. You know, I've been, I've been the prosecutor and I've been the defense lawyer and I've been the judge. So, um, that was, that was not difficult for me. You know, the surveillance stuff, on the other hand, it was all discovery as far as I was concerned. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one -on -one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm curious, you know, regarding the police, I I was very interested in the sort of idea of police, you know, maybe like small C corruption of like tightening a case on the by by lying. And I I love that. It it lended a lot of... uh, realism because it's not like this grand scheme to lie but it's just kind of here and there sort of small lies i guess i mean every cop will tell you if you um really get her or him you know lubricated with a couple of drinks that you know because of the um iron-headed nature of the legal system every now and then you got to tighten up on a case and and I, i i i remember Years ago, I represented a young man named Alex Hernandez, and Alex uh, was accused of a horrible rape murder that he had nothing to do with. I mean, ultimately, he was first sentenced to death and then imprisoned for 12 years and finally exonerated. And in the course of doing that, an, an officer came to me who'd had some role in the investigation, and and what he said when he walked through the door the first time he provided information to us was look lying to get somebody on a on a you know petty burglary rap i won't pretend i've never done that when i know he's a bad bad guy he said but you don't lie to you don't lie to put somebody down on a murder conviction and he felt that that's what had happened in this case you know he provided useful information uh he also provided a lot of bullshit leads just because of the way cops are and the way they gossip about each other and the suspicions they hold of the people who aren't their friends so um it it was it was pretty interesting but i i really do believe that that ethic exists on almost all police forces which is you know you don't lie to put somebody in prison for a substantial period of time or to, or God forbid, to take their lives. So, um, and ultimately that's where that case started to unravel when an officer essentially admitted having committed perjury. The Alex Hernandez case is a fascinating example of a wrongful conviction. If you really want to get into all the details of it, we highly recommend the book Victims of Justice, by Thomas Frisbee and Randy Garrett. It covers the entire story. But here are the basic facts. Janine Nicarico, a 10-year-old girl, was abducted from her home in 1983. She was raped and murdered. In 1985, Rolando Cruz and Alex Hernandez were tried together and were convicted of the crime and sentenced to death. Later that year, A rapist and murderer named Brian Dugan confessed to killing Janine. In 1988, the Illinois Supreme Court reversed the convictions of Cruz and Hernandez. Both men were retried. Hernandez's second trial ended in a hung jury. He was tried again and convicted. This time, he was sentenced to 80 years. That was when Scott Turow got involved. Well, um, I was brought into the case, which I had heard about while I was a prosecutor. And uh, 
my friend Jeremy Margolis uh, was the former. Uh, Jeremy had been my colleague and, you know, really the guy who brought me into the U.S. Attorney's Office first. Jeremy left before I did and eventually became chief of the state police. And the state police had investigated Alex's case uh, and determined that he and his co-defendant, Rolando Cruz, were almost certainly innocent because there was a third man named Brian Dugan who had committed this horrific crime. And there was pretty good reason to believe Dugan about that since he had done the same thing to another little girl within about 20 miles of the first murder. Uh, and when he was caught, you know, it's like, uh, to make a grisly comparison, it's like Amnesty Day at the library, bringing in all your books. And Dugan, of course, was told, you know, you know, make a full breast of your, of, of your crimes and, you know, we'll see what we can work out. And he, of course, confessed to that murder of poor little Janine at Carrico. And, um, you know, and Jeremy and particularly a guy named Ed Sazowski who worked for him, uh, were convinced about the innocence of Cruz and Hernandez, my client, and said, you know, come into this case. You know, th at that point it was Alex was on appeal from his second conviction. And I looked at him and I said, look, Jeremy, uh, and I, I was working with the three wonderful defense lawyers who had represented Alex at trial, uh, you know, Mike Metnick and Jeffrey Dangan and Jane Rayleigh. And, uh, you know, I looked at him, I said, look, I, I, you know, I was a prosecutor a long time. I've worked in the criminal justice system. I'll believe you can convict an innocent man once, but uh, how in God's name do you convict him twice? Twice, if he's innocent. And of course, I learned a whole lot um, about capital cases and what happens in the case of grisly crimes and what happens in the case of an you know, unscrupulous group of prosecutors. And uh, you know, I started reading the trial transcripts and about halfway through, I called Jeremy. And I said, oh, well, now I understand how you convict an innocent man twice. You just lie about everything. Uh, and, you know, uh, and, that, and that was really what had happened. There were grotesque, um, it was grotesque behavior by the prosecutors, three of whom ended up uh, being charged with crimes themselves. They were acquitted, uh, which, you know, a lot about police investigations is not surprising, since juries have a very, very hard time uh, convicting anybody in law enforcement for um being overzealous and doing their jobs. But uh, as far as I was concerned, and as far as I am concerned today, none of those men were unfairly accused of crimes. And uh, certainly was probable cause to believe that. And, uh, you know, and they had taken 12 years of Alex and Rolando's lives. Uh, and uh, both ultimately were the beneficiaries of large civil settlements, as they well should have been. Uh, but it was just, I, I really, really, really did not believe uh, before I started in that case that there were people uh, so um, venal and 
so driven by the realities of elective politics uh, that they would lie, uh, make up evidence in order to convict two men. And that's what happened. And we understand that you've done a lot of research and sort of like looking into the subject of capital punishment, you know, for the state of Illinois and, you know, diving into that. And also with your experience with the Hernandez case, how how has that sort of informed your your opinions on on that subject? Um, You know, this is going to sound a little funny, but uh, I thought the behavior in Alex's case was so extreme that it taught almost no lessons about the system, which is to say that if you have people who are willing to act like criminals in the law enforcement system, then, uh, you know, bad things are going to happen. But I thought then, and I still believe, um, yes, there are a lot of overzealous prosecutors, you know, ask ask Adnan, Adnan Syed about that um uh and they um develop a, a sort of uh, lead shield around their consciences at times uh, but you know to outright make up evidence I, I just i didn't think i didn't think that happened so i didn't think there was a great lesson about the criminal justice system or the capital system, because I assume those episodes would be relatively rare. I will tell you that in the eyes of most Americans, if you say that, um, you know, every 10 years, there's a prosecutor somewhere in the United States who's willing to lie and cheat in order to convict somebody of a capital crime. For them, that's enough to get rid of the death penalty. Um, But uh, it wasn't until I was appointed as a member of the Capital Punishment Commission by Governor Ryan, because I represented Alex and had some other death row clients, that I um, really tried to look at the system objectively. And even when I started there, I was what I called the death penalty agnostic. I had not made up my mind irretrievably about capital punishment. With the opportunity to spend two years studying the system, I'm pretty sure I read every first-degree murder case decided in the, by an appellate court in the state of Illinois or the Supreme Court. Um, you know, certain things became obvious to me. And the, the most important was that the capital system didn't work. And it, it doesn't work by its own terms. In other words, People want capital punishment because they think it will provide moral clarity, um, namely for some crimes that are so horrible and unspeakable. Uh, you know, for ultimate evil, there ought to be ultimate punishment. Uh, and it just it doesn't happen. You know, people who get uh, convicted of capital murder uh, and sentenced to death uh, are very frequently not the worst of the worst. Uh, and on the other hand, the worst of the worst um, are often for, because of systemic needs like, you know, let's save time and not spend three months on trial. You know, they're, they're allowed to live so that, um, you know, in the same counties where Alex was convicted, there were um, 
crimes equally horrific, uh, where people been allowed to plead out for life sentences. And, uh, you know, what sentence, did, what sense does that make? And then you add on top of it that, um, you know, the race effect, which is the race of the victim, much more likely to get the death penalty in the U.S. for killing a white person than killing a black person. And that's without regard to the race of the murderer. Um, gender, women just don't get sentenced to death as often as men. Um, and sometimes they've committed some pretty grisly crimes, like, you know, a lady in Lake County who, you know, poured lie down the throat of her infant daughter. Um, and, uh, you know, you're better off committing murder in a poor county than in a rich county, because a poor county can't dedicate the resources to a capital prosecution. Um, and rich counties can't more easily afford that. You know, there were so many random factors, including just the convictions of the prosecutor that influenced who was sentenced to death and who wasn't. Um, that, you know, just like, this system doesn't deliver a clear message. Uh, it's a hodgepodge. And, you know, people who haven't done, committed crimes anywhere near as grave as other people get sentenced to death. And uh, it, it just, it makes absolutely no sense. And the arguments in favor of it, um, you know, like deterrence, that's the favorite. Um, that doesn't hold up under scrutiny either. Uh, and that's because when you take the young, poor men who are overwhelmingly, who gets convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death, um, without engaging in too gross a generalization, I think in most cases they come from backgrounds so deprived that if you say to them what will happen tomorrow, uh, they look at you and go, I don't know, man, what's going to happen tomorrow? Um, they, they are without a sense of the future um, because their own lives have been so fractured and unpredictable. So you're not going to deter them uh, because in order to have a sense of consequences, you have to believe in the future. You mentioned the Hernandez case didn't reveal any really systemic problems with the system. Uh, with the Chris Thomas case, I believe you rather memorably said that he may have been on death row for the crime of having bad attorneys. Yeah. That's something that happens a lot. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't say, by the way, that there, I, my, I, I was talking about my naive perspective on Hernandez. Right. And certainly what I learned re re revealed a moral depravity that I still hope is not um, widespread in the criminal justice system. Chris's case is more typical of what I was talking about um, with the criminal justice system. Let's take a moment to quickly summarize the story of Chris Thomas. We hear a great deal about people sentenced to death who may actually be innocent of the crime of which they were convicted. But that is not the case here. Chris Thomas was guilty. His story raises a different issue. How do we decide which guilty people deserve to be put to death? Here's the story. Thomas and a couple of friends ran out of gas in a mall parking lot. 
On the spur of the moment, they decided to rob someone. They spotted a delivery driver named Rafael Gasconia and confronted him. Thomas put a gun to the man's head. During the ensuing struggle, Thomas shot his weapon, killing Gasconia. Taking a life under almost all circumstances is a horrible crime deserving serious punishment. Generally, however, people are not sentenced to death unless the details of the murder are more egregious than what happened with Chris Thomas. So what happened? Chris was represented by two men who'd signed a contract with the county for the sum of $30,000. They had to handle 103 cases and six of them had to be first degree murders. And when you do the arithmetic, you know, that's a little less than $300 a case. And, you know, for $300, you get what you paid for in terms of representation. And, and neither of these, these men who originally represented uh, Alex were bad people. They were trying to make a living. They were former prosecutors who just took it for granted that everybody who's accused of that kind of crime is guilty. And there was no question, frankly, at the end of the day, that Chris was guilty. Um, and uh, but that uh, that was not the full analysis. The question is whether he deserved to be sentenced to death. And uh, it really approved. It really, really appeared to me that he had shot the poor, hardworking. Um, wonderful young man, uh, uh, Mr. Gascogna. Um, he had shot him impulsively and killed him. And uh, you walk around with a loaded gun and you try to stick somebody up and you end up, you end up killing them. The law uh, treats that as a murder and I'm not here, I'm not here to question that. But how do you end up going to, from a crime that was obviously not long contemplated in advance uh, to the death penalty. Well, you've got to, first of all, uh, have lawyers who don't do any investigation into Chris's background. And there were horrible facts in Chris's life. He'd been raised in a crack house. And uh, his aunt uh, used to travel out to Waukegan from Chicago by train every Sunday, take him to dinner, give him a little money. He'd go back to the crack house and they'd strip him naked to find the money that his aunt had given him. Uh, you know, and that does not, that kind of experience, uh, especially when it's your mom who's letting that happen, uh, that that does not lead uh, to building great trust in other, in other human beings. And uh, so you had the, and, and that part of Chris's background had gone entirely uh, uninvestigated. And, uh, you know, but instead, the lawyers let Chris get up at his sentencing and deny that he committed the crime, which so infuriated the judge who never sentenced anybody else to death his entire career that he sentenced Chris to death. And, um, you know, you can look back at that transcript and see a young man who is saying, as I interpret it, I don't trust these lawyers. You know, you gave me bad lawyers and I don't trust them. And, um, you know, but the judge didn't hear that. 
that he heard somebody saying I didn't do it when he damn well had. Uh, and uh, so he thought he, you know, was amoral and sentenced him to death. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I'm curious, too. Uh, we have some questions about how your work as a lawyer has informed your novels. But I'm curious, would you say that working as a novelist has impacted how you practice law? Well, uh, every criminal defense lawyer has to be part psychiatrist. Um, because, you know, uh, people who commit crimes and even people who didn't commit crimes but are accused of it um, are, are all in a kind of psychiatric state. Uh, and of course, the wrongly accused, frankly, are in some ways worse off than, um, than the correctly accused. Uh, and so you've got to both have empathy, but like an author, you, you both have to see the world through their eyes and try to make, you know, rational, not cold-hearted, uh, but more distant judgments uh, about what they're saying and what might have happened. You know, and then you're really trying to imagine um, what um, what is alleged and what actually occurred. And uh, so the, the, the skills of a novelist are always very helpful. Uh, especially, you know, in, in, in both in dealing with clients and in being able to come up with a coherent explanation uh, for the crime. Even so, uh, you know, you still will miss the obvious. And, uh, you know, when Chris Thomas finally, after four years of representing him, explained what had occurred, uh, in that parking lot, uh, all of the evidence made complete sense, uh, but it was something 
and, and I'll leave as in, in the realm of confidence is exactly what Chris said. But, um, you know, it, it made sense of all the forensic evidence and it was something that I'd never imagined. Uh, and it was really very simple. So, um, and, you know, Chris didn't know that evidence well enough to be making this up so that he could be explaining the stippling from the gun blast uh, in the skin of, the, of, of poor Gasconia. Um, and, you know, so reality, it constantly outstrips the imagination of the novelist. Um, I, I was curious, you know, in, in Suspect, there's, you know, I, I won't give away too many spoilers for our listeners, but there's a very intensive investigation that starts to sort of take place at some point. And you yourself, we understand, we're, we're part of one very sprawling, very intensive investigation into topics like, you know, law enforcement, or uh, rather, uh, you know, justice system corruption, Operation yeah. Greylord. And I was wondering, could you tell us about that and if that sort of influenced any aspects of, of Suspect? Well, you know, the, the, my experiences in the criminal justice system and my experiences as a prosecutor, you know, they're always with me. They're part of who I am. Um, and as I said, I was part of a number of police department investigations from all sides. So, um, but, you know, it, to the I spent eight years doing complex grand jury investigations you know, where you're really peeling the onion uh, and forcing people to talk, frankly. You don't get very far, um, you know, by trying um, to, you know, just persuade people to be good people and tell the truth. Generally speaking, you put them in a situation where they've got no choice but to tell the truth. Uh, and that gives you one little piece of the truth and then you try to get the next but at least you've got leverage then because uh, you mr a presumably tells you the truth and you go to his b and say i know you did this or i know you did this certain thing or i know this part of your police report is a fabrication and i'm going to give you a chance to clean this up now once uh you know, very, very much like ultimately happens in one of those scenes in Suspect. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I lived that life and the life of a prosecutor is so emotionally intense that it's it's just burned into your brain. It really is. You know, and it's still in my dreams. You, you dream about cases that you had tried? I, I don't dream about the cases, but this, you know, per se, but... You know, I, I, I am often uh, the prosecutor or the defendant or occasionally the defense lawyer in my dreams. And of course, it's not. It's a dream. It's not all unfolding rationally. Um, and, uh, you know, somehow a parking ticket in your dreams becomes a capital offense because you're so embarrassed about it. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's always there. Does dealing about some of the cases and stuff you've worked on, does putting them in a fictional context help uh, exercise some of that? You know, like uh, pleading, uh, pardon me, personal injuries kind of touched on some of the yeah. Greylord. Yeah, personal injuries was definitely Greylord. 
Personal Injuries is an acclaimed 1999 novel. In it, Turrell tells the story of Robbie Favor, a lawyer who gets caught bribing judges to decide cases his way. The FBI agrees to go easy on him if he consents to work for them to help them get evidence against the judges. There is quite a bit more to it than that, but suffice to say, it is well worth seeking out and reading. And, as Turrell says, it is inspired by his real-life work on Operation Greylord, an undercover operation that resulted in the indictments of 17 judges, 48 lawyers, 8 court officials, and even one state legislator. Of course, that sprawling investigation was actually made a little bit smaller. And, uh, you know, I'm not positive I dealt with anybody in Greylord who was, was quite as morally complex uh, as Robbie Favor was. Uh, but um, you're still dealing with people who... Uh, you know, often have done very decent things and, you know, good, been good parents. Or uh, I, I tried a guy named Dan McGovern for bribing um, hearing officers at the real estate assessment agency in Cook County. And McGovern was just one of the nicest, most decent people um, I'd ever met. And yet this was his second time through the mill. He'd gotten immunity once before. And, you know, now he was essentially accused of the same thing of a, you know, bribery offense. Uh, and uh, didn't get along particularly well with his own lawyer. So he sat with the prosecutors during the court breaks. And he never told me he didn't do it. But he was just, he was very accepting of his responsibility for what he had done. But he'd done it, you know, he'd done it. That didn't, uh, and, uh, you know, he's kind of an extreme case in the in the sense that, you know, he did a terrific life of involvement with lots of charities. and um, But, you know, he, he accepted the rules of the game in Cook County. He meant paying off public officials if you, you know, in order to make a living. And that's unacceptable. And the man's got to go to prison and he went. So, uh, and there is lots of that. Uh, but as I said, I don't know if I met anybody quite as morally complex as Robbie Favor. I, I'm curious, you know, we've talked about sort of you being on both sides of the prosecution defense yeah. and then just all the shades of gray that really come through in your work. You know, you have a lot of decent people who are trying their best, but, you know, obviously complications often arise and sort of low-level corruption kind of is shot through the whole thing. But just from a perspective of, you know, what do you think necessary reforms would look like for, you know, policing, but also the justice system writ large? We've talked about some of the problems and I guess any sort of high-level thoughts on how do we fix this? How do we become a more fair and equitable system? Yeah, I will admit that I never thought much of the mantra of defund the police. Uh, and I have too much respect for and understanding of the incredibly difficult role that cops have um, to talk about defunding the police. Um, if I had to get one concept through the heads 
of police officers, it would probably be that it is not your responsibility to be judge and jury. And uh, your job is to arrest the people you think have committed crimes. And I know that it involves um, often um, tremendous anxiety about your own personal safety and uh, often great courage. Uh, to make these arrests, you know, anybody who works undercover and on drugs, for example, is they go out there every day knowing they can get blown away. Uh, I understand that, um, but you have to do your job in good faith and let the system operate. In Chicago right now, uh, the police are very unhappy about um you know, the attitude in the state's attorney's office. Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox has come under fire in some quarters for following policies that some critics perceive as being soft on crime, while others hail those same policies as helping to achieve a more just system. For instance, the Marshall Project did research showing that Fox chose not to prosecute more than 5,000 low-level, nonviolent criminal cases that would have been prosecuted under the previous state's attorney. It is easy to see how some would interpret that as letting criminals off the hook, but the Chicago Sun-Times saw things differently. The paper's editorial board noted that throwing the book at thousands of low-level, nonviolent offenders does nothing to make our streets safe or help those offenders turn their lives around. As Tarot notes, Many people in Chicago area law enforcement seem more inclined to side with those who take a negative view of Fox's policies. What Kim Fox decides to do uh, really should not be bothering them. They should. But instead, you know, in Chicago, they're reluctant to make arrests. Why? Because Kim Fox is just going to let them go. Um, you know, or they, I presume, are tightening up the cases in a way that uh, you know, exceeds what was done in the past. Um, but I, you know, I approach policing with empathy um, because it's an incredibly difficult job without um, a pay scale that's commensurate with either the, either the risks uh, or the anguish of the job. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in Chicago, the problem is not defunding police. It's, a, it's that um, they can't even fill the available slots in the police department because people don't want to be police officers anymore because they're not respected on the street. Uh, and people assume they're racist just because they put on a badge. Uh, and... Uh, you know, a city like Chicago, thanks to the idiots in the Supreme Court, uh, is, you know, a mop with guns. And uh, it's an incredibly dangerous job as a result. So who the hell in their right mind would want that job? Uh, and people aren't taking it. Uh, and, you know, where did that get us? Except an increase in crime. Uh you know, in the city. 
So, uh, you know, convincing police officers that they're not responsible for everything, that they should do their job in good faith, um, and that, and accept the fact that they're an important, but not the only component of the criminal justice system, uh, is, is really important. And, you know, they don't like Kim Fox. That's fine, but she got elected and she didn't make any bones about what she was going to do. And they may think it's wrong, but, you know, they didn't get elected to make those decisions. She did. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm curious in terms of, um, you know, just as, as this is more of an author question, uh, but why do you think people, Americans, I guess in general at this point, are, are so fascinated with stories about crime, whether they're true stories or fictional stories, you know, what what's what drives that? I think everybody is tempted by um, criminality. Um, you know, everybody imposes the will on themselves, you know, not to break the law, whether it's not running red lights uh, or handing back the change when you get too much at McDonald's. And uh, it's a matter of degree, but, you know, everybody is tempted to do wrong. And so that's why crime stories almost always end with the moral like Aesop that, that crime doesn't pay, that, you know, you get punished if you commit a crime. That's to reinforce the morality that people impose on themselves. Uh, and so people are always fascinated with the riddle of how do other people um, get the wherewithal to break the law? Uh, and how do they get detected and punished after they've done it? Uh, and it's just, it's an eternal conflict of living in society. Uh, and when I realized this uh, about halfway through my career as a prosecutor, as I sat in a courtroom looking at um, the absolutely rapt attitudes of everybody uh, listening to the testimony of a witness in what was supposedly a picky and minor case involving stolen food stamps, uh, it dawned on me that... Um, because of my concerns about the same issues, uh, that the subject that had always eluded me in my earlier years as a you know a writing fellow and a member of you know the English department at Stanford, that I'd finally found my subject because this was a what I wanted to write about, b what I could write about, uh, and c something that was going to be of interest to a broad audience. And I always had that view that, you know, art is not made great by being hard to understand. So to the extent that, you know, a broad popular audience is drawn to something, um, that, um, that, that that's a plus for its quality as a work of art. Uh, I'm also curious, you have so many fascinating stories about your legal career. And of course, your first book was a memoir of right. your first year as a law student. Have you ever considered writing some sort of a memoir 
about your legal career? Um, the, the short answer is yes, but um, you know the ban grand jury secrecy uh, is permanent, and, and um, there there is no Rule Six E of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure has no time limit in it. So uh, I, I'm sure if I thought about this, I could do it. And uh, you know, I'm old enough now to think about doing something on the order of memoir um you know and i i may i don't i mean i'm certainly committed to writing another novel now and i'll see how i feel when i finish it but uh you know it, it it's a good suggestion and it's one that i have to think about more actively Without, oh, can you uh, you say you're working on another novel now can you give us any hints that's what i was gonna I'm, going, I'm, I'm, I'm going back to rusty savage one more time uh and uh he's in an entirely different uh, life now in a different place uh and um he's going to find himself in a role that he's never occupied before which is his you know, the defense lawyer for the accused. So he's been the accused, he's been the judge, he's been the prosecutor. Now he's gonna now he's gonna occupy that other that other role. That's very tantalizing. He's been through it. <laughs> he knows it from all sides. Sort of like you except you've never been accused, so <laughs> <laughs> Well that actually is, you know, not completely true. I had horrible experience when I left the Justice Department. And, uh, you know, I was under investigation for a while. And, um, you know, I, I sure didn't do what they thought I had done. But um, Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I, I, when, I, um, when I was in AUSA, uh, in order to develop evidence uh, for uh, Greylord, frankly, I, I was asked to preside over an incredibly corrupt, uh, lawless, a uh, guy who wanted to plead guilty and inform the government. Of course, he wanted to do it, and as it turned out, in a um, you know, according to his own lights and pick and choose who we would talk about, and uh, you know, that would never work. And we ultimately broke off our communications with him. But in the course of doing that, uh, he told me about a client who was going who had asked him to engage with the client in a major drug offense. And at that point in time, we wanted to keep the guy's role under wraps. Um, so we couldn't just call the U.S. Attorney's Office in Florida and say, uh, here's your guy, because we didn't want to burn the informant. We, he had given us information that ultimately proved to be true about a couple of judges who were taking money in the criminal courts and Cook County. Um, he ultimately proved an utterly useless witness against those people. But um, so what the U.S. attorney decided was uh, that we would have to pursue this drug investigation in Florida ourselves. And because the attorney client relationship was being used um, not as an attorney client relationship, but as a criminal relationship, that, you know, we were free to uh, have the attorney tape record his client. Now, this was a pretty daring position, uh, and it was approved 
uh, in the upper reaches of the Justice Department. But when the shit hit the fan, um, all the people <laughs> I had been following scattered. And I was, you know, I was left holding the bag. And, um, I, you know, for some reason, I was thinking about this this morning. And I, I take it for I, I, I take it for granted that you can't always expect the best of people. And it, when it happened, I was the author of Presumed Innocent, and that's why I drawn the lightning. And uh, it didn't surprise me that the other, you know, the, the more intensive the scrutiny of me and, and um, more harsh the criticism, the less people wanted to step forward and say, I told them to do it. Uh, and um, and uh, oddly, my wife blames those people more than I do for, you know, their lack of courage. Uh, ultimately, one of my friends, Jim Ferguson, who remained in the U.S. Attorney's Office, doggedly doggedly pursued the files. And of course, the funniest part about this was that the people in the Justice Department who'd signed off on this, you know, they didn't even want to give up the documents. So it took Jim forever. But he finally found, you know, a copy of uh, the order where somebody in the Justice Department had approved all of this and signed off on it. And that, of course, became the end of the case. But it took a year and a half uh, so, yeah, I, I, I've been through that. Uh, I ended up paying my own legal fees, which I could af afford, fortunately for me, uh, and which most prosecutors or public defenders can't. Uh, and so I formed this unlikely alliance with the late Orrin Hatch and uh, tried to get legislation through Congress, which ultimately passed. And... You know, that would compensate um, prosecutors and FBI agents and federal defenders who were subjected to um, allegations of criminal behavior for which the Justice Department couldn't defend them because they're both the prosecutor and they can't be the defense lawyer, too. Uh, and after all the work to get it through Congress, <laughs> uh, George Bush the first vetoed it because of it was part of the crime bill, uh, and he didn't like the way the Democrats had softened that bill. So uh, and we were never able to revive that provision. So it's still the case that if you're an AUSA or a federal defender or an FBI agent, like, you know, uh, the people who we've been hearing a lot about in the news, like Peter Strzok, you're stuck paying your own fees. Uh, and... Uh, that's why so many books are written in the aftermath or you see these people as TV commentators because they're paying off their legal bills. That's like a whole separate rabbit hole. <laughs> it's a whole separate rabbit hole. But it made me a much better lawyer for my clients because I understood what it felt like. Um, especially, and, and most of the people I've represented in grand jury investigations did not do what the government thought they did. Uh, and I could look them in the eye and say, I know, I've been there, you know, and it came to the right end for me, and, you know, I'm very hopeful it will come to the right end for you.
Well, we've, we've taken up the full hour. Is there any, this has been delightful and we really Thank appreciate you so much. it. Is there anything we didn't ask you about that you wanted to mention? No, I mean, it's, you know, I'm sure we could go on for another hour and I'd enjoy talking about myself, but uh, I'm particularly to, you know, two people who've done all the homework you have. So, um, but I'll just say thank you. I'm always grateful when I'm talking to people who've uh, done the amount of work the two of you have. You know, to get we ready. love your work. So, yeah. <laughs> so. Well, anyway. thank you so much for your time, sir. We really sure. appreciate it. My yeah. pleasure. And I'll, you know, be happy to come back whenever. So, yeah, thank you. We'll take you up we on will that. take you up on that. <laughs> we want to thank Scott Trudeau for taking the time to talk with us today. You can find his novel, Suspect, for sale wherever you buy books. We both really enjoyed it. And if you're interested in the justice system and the men and women who are a part of that justice system and how they make decisions and live their lives, we think you'd really enjoy it too. And frankly, you'd enjoy any of his books. He's a terrific writer. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.